2: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Hi, this is Josh Levine and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 8th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to do two segments on the Olympics because they are the Olympics. We'll talk about NBC's coverage and the jingoism and the suspicion of foreigners and Jenny Thrasher and snapped legs and what it means to assess whether the Olympics are going well or not. We will also talk to a Wrigley Field beer vendor about what it is like to be a Wrigley Field beer vendor. In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Alex Rodriguez, how we feel about him, how we feel about the end of his career with the New York Yankees. You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. If you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangupplus. Stefan Fatsis is out this week. He's competing at the North American Scrabble Championship at the Grand Wayne Convention Center, 120 West Jefferson Boulevard, Fort Wayne, Indiana. But with me as always, is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. You are not at the Grand Wayne Convention Center, 120 West Jefferson Boulevard, Fort <laughs> Wayne, Indiana. Our our third man into the ring. It's Justin Peters. Man who's spent many, many, many great times at the Grand Wayne Convention Center. He's the author of the book, The Idealist, Aaron Swartz and the Rise of Free Culture on the Internet, which will come in handy if a spirited discussion of copyright law breaks out on today's show.
4: Crossing my fingers.
3: (laughs) More relevant for our purposes, Justin has been blogging the Olympics for Slate since 2012. He is the author of such posts as, Does the Red Flag Guy at the Trap Shooting Competition Have the Best Olympics Job? Welcome, Justin. Justin. Hey, Josh. It's it's like uh, we were talking just just a few minutes ago about the red flag guy.
4: Oh, man, what's not to talk about? Uh, (laughs) That guy's got it going on. He's got a red flag. He's got a hat. He's sitting there totally chill. Um, America loves him, I presume.
1: Yeah. He's probably got his body rubbed with oil. We can't tell because he's shirted, not unshirted, like a Tongan.
4: I think it's safe to assume that he's rubbed up with oil. Yeah. I
3: know I am. (laughs) Who isn't? If this uh, conversation has not been enough for you, and how could it possibly have been? If you want more Hang Up and Listen on the Olympics, you are in luck because there will be more Hang Up and Listen on the Olympics. For the next two weeks, we'll have extra daily Olympics shows each Tuesday through Friday. In addition to the regular Monday Hang Up episode, we'll have special guests. We'll have commentary from our pal David Epstein from ProPublica. Uh, He was great on the show last week talking about Castor Semenya. These shows uh, are free for everyone. Uh, You can get them by subscribing to the Hang Up and Listen feed in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends, help us grow. Listen to us talk about the Olympics, the Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra. We've got a lot of Olympics ground to cover here. And Mike, you raised an interesting question to me uh, before we started recording, which is how can you tell If the Olympics are going well, and what does that even mean? If you watch the NBC primetime coverage, you obviously get one kind of view, a tape-delayed, sanitized kind of view of what's going on in Rio. If you follow uh, the news on Twitter or uh, read the news elsewhere, you'll get a different view. So what is your sense of what's been happening so far in Rio, and kind of where have you acquired that sense from? Reuters is a good
1: source for uh, finding out all the terrible stuff that's going on in Rio. Um, Now, they list, um, they don't just list, they report, as good news organizations do, uh, some of the terrible things that have befallen visitors and citizens and attendees of the games, among those things. And tell me, stop me, listeners, if you're like, oh, yeah, we all know this, that a bunch of Swedish tourists were abducted after they took an Uber, got out of the car, took some Pictures of a favela were taken hostage... Then thankfully released. That didn't get a lot of attention. I would think that that's the sort of thing that maybe should get attention. A uh, dignitary from, I believe, Portugal was robbed near the Olympic Lake. As soon as the head of the security emerged from the stadium where opening ceremonies was held, he was he was assaulted. There was uh, someone shot dead right outside the ceremony, opening ceremonies. A bullet tore through the equestrian center and, oh, the exp- and the explanations are like, well, you know, there's an army training site next door. Not, not a good explanation. <laughs> (laughs) Well, I should say not an excuse, perhaps an explanation, but they still haven't figured out what gun it came from. So I guess you could say this all adds up to wow, they're really sitting on a bunch of horrible news going on in Rio. But Rio is a fairly crime ridden city, not as bad as some other Brazilian cities. In fact, I've read some statistics that say not as bad as Compton, but pretty bad. So I wouldn't want, you wouldn't think that crime would cease to exist during the Rio Olympics. I am a little surprised how. You knew that NBC would whitewash it, but I thought it would maybe be an eggshell and this is an ivory. Well, on NBC, it's always the best of all possible worlds at any given moment, right? You know, the
4: uh, stories of kidnappings and straight bullets don't really fit into the package segments about, you know, people's parents and um, how they came to learn to be really fast at whatever their sport is. Uh, maybe it should. Maybe, you know, that it provides some nice sort of layers to the coverage if there's one sappy, um, you know, segment and then a really hard-hitting expose of where that bullet came from. I'd watch that, but maybe no one else would.
3: Well, I get a little bit annoyed with the critiques of NBC's coverage because by this point, we all know what they do, and it just seems like every two years— There's this kind of faux naivete around, I can't believe that NBC is packaging the Olympics in the exact same way everyone has been packaging the Olympics since, you know, Rune Arledge took over the broadcast for ABC in the 70s. And NBC also is providing live coverage of every event, and not just every event, like on the gymnastics on Sunday, you could have a dedicated feed, like high quality, super HD feed of every individual apparatus. So even if you didn't want to watch like what the main online live gymnastics feed was showing, you could just like watch the Chinese on the beam for five minutes. You can watch every court in tennis and all of those get archived immediately after. So if you're annoyed by the primetime NBC coverage, you can curate Your own Olympics. And NBC should do better. Yes, they could do a better job providing the kind of coverage that Mike was saying they should provide. And critiquing NBC is fine. But as kind of consumers of the Olympics and of the news around the Olympics, I don't think we're lacking for options, right?
1: Well, that's saying that NBC is doing a great job and they are giving us sports entertainment. But by the same notion, we should say, well, the NFL, I mean, sure, they're maybe not doing the great thing on concussions. What do you expect? I love the graphics during the game. I mean, especially (laughs) maybe it's not even a great comparison because it's not just the NBC Entertainment Division, it's all of the sports division. You know, MSNBC, CNBC, they've given themselves over to the Olympics. And I don't have unrealistic expectations. I don't think it's fair to say they've been doing it the way since Rune Arledge has been doing it because media has emerged so much and sitting on news and gatekeepers keeping us from news that maybe would bother us a little bit is a relic of a bygone era. Um, when I was in London covering the Olympics, I didn't get a great sense of what it was like back here in the United States, but they have a really robust press, especially newspaper press there. and There was tons of stories about a bicyclist who was killed near the Olympic venue. There's much less crime. There's a hundred murders in, in London a Year. In Rio, it's much, much higher. So if you want to, you could exclusively focus on bad news in Rio. I think, judged against where we are in 2016, and given that NBC does its sports coverage fantastically, I still think they're falling down in the job. And I have a theory. And the theory, I think, is borne out by the fact that the ratings are down, which is that there was so much bad news around the Olympics this time around. People were less apt to watch it. I think they're just as excited about athletes. I don't think that it's true that there's not a compelling athletic story. And then if you compare it to Beijing and ratings are down from Beijing, um, the time zone is better. The time zone's better than London. So everything w- would seem to add up to people wanting to watch these Olympics, except ratings are down because of all the bummer stories. And I think NBC definitely knows that and doesn't want to give us anything except the ones that they know they have to give us, like a couple of Tom Brokaw pieces a week. And it
4: just feels weird to me because, as you're saying, there
1: was so much
4: leading up to these games, and there yeah. continues to be so much during the games that you're seeing online, you're seeing from print or web outlets that you're just not seeing at NBC. And and while I get that NBC what it does, what it does, and you know wants to package these stories and focus on the athletic portion, and it does that you know very well, they could strike a balance. One can envision coverage that satisfies people like me and satisfies people who are just sitting at home and want to watch Americans uh, win gold. It can be both. It doesn't just have to be one or the other, which is what we've, you know, become accustomed to. And I think it's sort of low expectations. I think it's letting NBC off the hook.
3: Josh Levine is letting NBC off the hook. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think that I was conflating complaints about the sports coverage, which people do still make. And I think those complaints are kind of lame because it is totally understandable to me and actually defensible the way that NBC covers just the sports aspect of it because they do give the hardcore sports fans the option to watch any way that they want at any time they want live, you know, replays, whatever. And the primetime broadcast is the big moneymaker for NBC. And they focus on the stories and the, you know, tape delayed events that are going to bring in the more casual fans. I think that there's a certain logic to it, but you guys are right that there is, I think, a way to bring in more, of the stories that are legit news that are harder news and to integrate them better into the broadcast in a way that I think people would find engaging and interesting. Although I totally do not buy the idea that the ratings are down because there was bad news about the Olympics in Rio. People just do not care about what's going on in Brazil. I think there's been so much crazy bad news here in the US that to think that people are just like, Turned off by what's happening in Brazil, or think that people are even aware of what's happening in Brazil. And it's only been a couple days. There are yeah. just so many, like, kind of complicating factors that to make any sort of conclusion now about ratings, I think, would be wrong. Yeah, there's only been one
4: really good event so far, right? In the way that, you know, I assume lots of Americans see it. And it was the swimming last night. I mean, were there any sort of memorable uh, medal events on Saturday night? I, Can't think of any. Saturday
1: night? No. There was uh, Men's Foil, which was amazing. Did you see the Italian go behind the back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. And by the way, Josh, if you're criticizing the coverage, I don't know, do you include announcers in that? I think some of the announcers who we never get to hear, I have no idea who is doing the fencing, and I know nothing about fencing, but they were great. Whereas the gymnastics announcers, I think Lucan is great, but twice Tim Daggett used the phrase, she's not a star, she's an icon. About two different people. (laughs) The announcers on the online feeds are really, really
4: great. Yeah, Uh, yeah. The the weightlifting announcers are fantastic. This woman, Michaela Breeze, who was a British uh, competitor a few Olympics ago, um, is just the most sort of enthusiastic and knowledgeable uh, weightlifting commentator and only weightlifting commentator that I've ever heard. (laughs) Um, But I'm a big fan.
1: Yep, yep. I was watching the weightlifting too. Agreed.
3: So, Justin, I get really stressed out. Because of the ridiculous array of options, there is the gold zone. Online, which is the red, like the NFL Red Zone channel, it's the same by, guy, it's the same guy, <laughs> it's a concept that works, it's a concept that works. Um, he's, he's capitalized
1: on his short attention span, and versus it's the same guy.
3: So, they switch between metal events, and they you know generally do a pretty good job. Although, I got a little bit freaked out when they did the split screen of the swimming and shooting at the same time, I thought that something. Maybe it had gone horribly wrong, a la the (laughs) shooting at the equestrian center. But how do you decide uh, what to watch?
4: So the Gold Zone helps. It definitely helps. You know, that sort of can help direct my attention towards something that is coming up on a memorable moment. And I'll, you know, shift my feed over to that and watch the full feed. and, And that's great. But, you know, mostly, at least in these first few Days of the Olympics, I'm going around looking for stuff that I have no reason to watch. And maybe that's just, like, me and my sort of weird mind. But I'm, I'm less interested at this point in watching basketball or soccer or any of the sports that I can theoretically see at uh, many other times of year. I'm much more interested in tuning into something that I'm not sure whether I'll like, like weightlifting, where when I watched that on Saturday night, I was like, oh, this will be weird. It's a thing that might be enjoyable. And it was incredibly enjoyable. Weightlifting is one of the um, great unsung viewing pleasures of Olympic sport. And I would never have known that if I hadn't just taken a chance on watching it. Same thing with shooting. I'm writing a lot about the shooting sports in part because there have been a lot of shooting events over the past couple of days. But I think I would be writing about them even if every other good sport was going because they're very, very dramatic to watch. You can instantly figure out what's going on uh, you can instantly uh, determine who is ahead, what the person behind needs to do to get ahead. Uh, there are occasionally men with hats and red flags who are amusing sitting there. So in answer to question, I guess, you know, I'll try anything once or twice. And then if
1: it turns out that I like it, I'll keep on watching. The shooting sports, including archery, are great second or third screen sports. True, You can watch it out of the corner of your eye and then attend to it when it really counts.
3: Mike, what are your thoughts? I'm feeding you a question that you want to answer. That's that, that's uh, how we do things in the business. What are your thoughts on weight classes in, uh, in these various sports? Do you have any thoughts on that? I
1: do all of the combat sports have a structure and the weightlifting uh, is included in this too though it's not a combat sport although man against iron can be seen as such where they start off with the lightest and go to the heaviest and that's not bad but judo does it taekwondo does it weightlifting does it so you get the heavyweights at the end uh the last couple of days now with judo it doesn't matter that much it's not so important to see like the difference between a middleweight guy and a heavy guy but weightlifting it certainly does and it's just the sameness of always going from light to heavy, I think they should mix it up. Why can't they mix it up? Why can't they start at different times? I think that a variety of different sized people pummeling each other or the iron would be would be nice.
4: So you're saying that maybe to be cool for one day, the 48-kilogram uh, lifters, and the next day, like the ultra-heavyweights? Yes. And maybe yes. there could be sort of like a, an all-star uh, competition where um, the uh, best from various weight classes face off against each
1: other. In a different sport, because that would be unfair. Oh, exactly. Like the Taekwondo guys could weightlift. They and all play handball together. Yeah. <laughs> there is something weird when you watch all these sports with weight classes, and then you think about other sports that can't have that, but, you know, you have have to be unbelievably tall to be a high jumper. There is no weight class. This is my greatest idea in all of sports, big gymnastics, where people have to be of a certain height or a certain weight to participate in gymnastics. But it does, to some extent, color my appreciation for the weightlifting. When the weight isn't as much that they're lifting, I know you're a small guy, and I know we can do, or a woman, and I know we can do the uh, math about percentage of your body weight. But at a certain point, seeing those gigantic plates and bending the rod that is what i'm looking for in weightlifting less so with people pummeling the hell out of each other
3: i think you guys are not uh setting the bar high enough here why don't you have the little weightlifters and the big weightlifters on stage at the same time they can have separate competitions but they can alternate lifts so you can sort of see the difference you can see them right next to each other that would be fun
4: so, it's good. so that we can all enjoy seeing uh, how very uh, much larger the very large uh, weightlifters are than the very I'm, small. I'm a very simple. I'm this, a
3: very simple man. It would make the small one seem so sad. <laughs> I thought that big Nastics was when Corliss Williamson, Big Nasty, does gymnastics. But <laughs> he always does another hobby horse or possibly
1: pommel horse of mine is the synchronized diving event. First of all, there's something great and indulgent about all the Olympics that you could look at all these events that people have dedicated their lives to, that they have such a breadth of knowledge of, that they're experts in, and as subcultures, they're totally legitimate. And I, as a viewer, can watch it for eight seconds and go, no, here's why it's wrong. And it's fine that I say that. I don't like synchronized diving. It looks okay. But doesn't synchronized diving reward two pretty good divers who are exactly as pretty good as each other as opposed to one very good diver and one great diver wouldn't the two pretty goods do better
3: <laughs> Justin
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: There used to be synchronized trampoline in the Olympics. Oh, There's, maybe there still is. I don't think there is.
1: Um, that's but- a goofy, that's an inherently goofy sport. So that's cool. Dive, see, why is diving even in FINA? Like, except for the fact that they land in the water. So that's the, that's the, you know, aquatic aspect of it. It has much more in common with gymnastics than swimming. Like, couldn't you do it so they land in a foam pit and then we could put it? you know then we I don't know what the benefit of having it in gymnastics Some, someone it would die more in the gymnastics like, family they, they,
4: they would die like uh, at least once in Olympics and maybe that'd be more exciting mm-hmm. like you'd you, if someone's a really good diver like they dive all the way to the bottom of the pit and like they crack their head and then you know the, um, well, you, you, you
3: the, the circle a of life let's,
1: begins anew
3: let's, let's end our first segment Imagine on the that foam terrib-
1: splash <laughs> not just the splash oh look at how she goes in without a foam
3: splash <laughs> let's, let's end our first segment on that terrible idea and then we can kind of clear Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, what do you guys think? Here's another hoary chestnut of NBC mm. Olympics complaint. Is the jingoism, the focus on our American stars, our Phelpses, our LeDeckieses, our Bileses, um, and the kind of suspicion of foreigners when Katie Ledecky sets a world record? By five seconds, it's, whoa! she's so amazing. Wow, America's sweetheart. Look how fast. And she's from Bethesda. And then when Hoshu, the Hungarian, sets the record, it's like, oh, her husband, that guy's pretty muscular. <laughs> but uh, he's an
1: American. Yeah, Doesn't that's, it kick in? Yeah, Look, that's true. Look, I mean,
3: like, I agree it's sort of
4: unseemly to be suspicious of other nations when they best American athletes. Except but Russia. Except Russia, you know, there's nothing suspicious there. But it's okay to root for the home team. And I want to sort of make the case for it being okay once every four years or once every two years, if the Winter Games count, which we all know they don't, um, Like um t- to root for the Americans. Like, this is a venue for sort of... Uh, very showy patriotism, right? They're walking into the stadium wearing these gaudy American flag outfits, you know. Everyone in the uh, games from whatever country is competing for national glory. Everyone in the stands at Rio, you know, they're all rooting for the athletes that come from the countries that they themselves live in. I think it's perfectly fine for NBC, an American uh, television network, to emphasize the best American athletes uh, because this is being broadcast in America and Americans want to root for Americans and you know on, on on this topic like I have no time for you know uh people who are like uh oh, why didn't NBC show that Bulgarian uh uh handball uh match uh, it's yeah, the, 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 that's garbage well okay you know like y- If you actually are so into handball and, you know, Olympic sports to want to watch the uh, Bulgarian handball match, then presumably you are intelligent or worldly enough to be (laughs) able to navigate on the Internet to uh, call it up yourself. They're showing every single match. You can watch it. You can even watch it at at odd hours. It's archived. NBC is doing what NBC
1: does in uh, American Network, and I'm fine with that should be noted that Bulgaria did not qualify in handball in men's (laughs) or women's. But the Qatari handball team is very interesting because they have few natural Qatari citizens, if any. I totally agree with you, Justin. And the thing that really opened my eyes was I've been in different countries on three different occasions when the Olympics were going on. As a kid, I was in England during the Olympics and I was in South Korea working during one Olympics, not the South Korean Olympics during the Atlanta Olympics, as a matter of fact. And I covered London during those Olympics. And every country does this and it's right to do it. It is a weird thing, though. Sometimes they fool us into thinking, what are the sports we inherently care about? Like, obviously, Americans are going to care about basketball. We happen to be great in basketball, but we're going to care about basketball. And the one event. World fastest man, yes, Americans are always very good at that, but we're as into that when Bolt is uh the fastest man currently. But then there are other events. Like the long jump, I would think, would be something that just there's a guy flying through the air. Wouldn't we watch that? But if an American isn't good at that, we don't really watch that. Same with pole vaulting, inherently interesting. We don't watch that too much. Why do we watch shot putting instead of hammer throw? That's fine. We're good at by the way, that's the only strong event that American men are good at. We're terrible at hammer, we're terrible at discus. We're were good this year at Choput. the one thing that i think is weird if you ask me hey do americans inherently care about diving or is that going to be on tv i would think back to greg luganis and some other american stars yeah diving's a sport america's into No. now that the chinese are so good at it they hardly show any of it on
3: tv and i haven't heard anyone saying hey what about the diving well,
4: That's because they're not diving into a foam pit
3: foam pit that's why <laughs> i thought we cleared the palate. um Mike, I'm really curious for your thoughts because you've talked for um, on a couple recent shows about when is it appropriate to give an athlete the benefit of the doubt. How should uh, media organizations talk about accusations or allegations? And that is totally relevant in these Olympics where you have an entire country, uh, Russia. That's been tainted by the state-run doping system. And then you have this individual athlete, Katinka Hoshu, who I mentioned before, the Hungarian, who is setting lots of world records at an advanced age. June Thomas, our colleague wrote a post arguing that the reason that there are all these whispers about her is because she's foreign and that this always happens in the Olympics that when an American sets a world record by five seconds that it's because of natural talent, and when a foreigner does it, it's because you know maybe they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. So, what are your thoughts on when kind of rumors or insinuations should be made and when they shouldn't be?
1: Well, with Russia, it's appropriate, and they you know the entire Paralympic team has been thrown out, which by the way just shows that the Paralympic team is powerless, and the uh, regular federation has some juice, literally. But. Uh, and when a swimmer – I forgot who it was, but one of the American female swimmers wagged a finger. Lily King. A, yes, her Russian competitor. And that should be celebrated. I hope <laughs> they – the Gatlin rumors will be noted. Not rumors. Uh, confirmed two suspensions. Okay? That that will be noted. That won't be entirely glossed over. I'd like to compare that to the Hoshu non-actual confirmed uh, doping. It seems – With Hoshu, I'm reading all these stories about how her training has increased. They always say that about everyone who takes PEDs, but sometimes it's also true. So I do think the benefit of the doubt when you're not part of a tainted federation or when your times are explicable, like Michelle Smith's times were inexplicable years ago, and it turns out that she was a doper.
3: I don't know that the same is true of Hoshu. There's no more suspicious athlete at these Olympics than Justin Gatlin, who's running these absurd, unprecedented times like into his 30s after having already been suspended for doping twice. And so I I think you're right that that's the fair test. Let's see how people talk about him. And he, you know, with Bolt being off his form a bit, you know, he might be the favorite to win the gold in the 100 meters.
1: Well, I looked it up on Patty Power. He's not, but that's a reflection of where the the action's coming. But I think real experts— Instantly refuted by actual facts. (laughs) Well, you know, that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be the favorite.
3: Thank you. Yeah. All right, Justin, the first uh, post you wrote, I think, on the Olympics blog was about Jenny Thrasher, who won the first medal of the Olympics. You learned a lot by watching NRA educational videos about the air rifle. Um, What did you make of her? She's 19 years old. Um, She only started shooting a few years ago. She's basically
4: uh, a real-life Katniss from the Hunger Games, uh, Mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, um, except without the actual Hunger Games part. But uh, she's from uh, Springfield, Virginia. She learned to shoot five years ago after going hunting with uh, her grandfather. uh, And she's quickly grown into probably the best intercollegiate shooter in the country. I was thrilled and delighted to learned that West Virginia University, where she attends school, has an intercollegiate rifle team, and that rifle is in NCAA sport. It was not uh, where I went to school, but I wish it had been. But uh, Thrasher cleaned up at the championships uh, this year, so did West Virginia. Uh, she was named top performer at the NCAAs. She qualified for the Olympic team with the air rifle, and she uh, won gold. And it's really, really hard to do this stuff. Um, I get annoyed when people talk about, oh, shooting or horsemanship should not be Olympic sports. Archery should not be an Olympic sport. These people aren't even breaking a sweat. Yes, they are. You know just because they're not running you know really fast or swimming long distances doesn't mean that this is not uh truly athletic at- activity. being able to control one's breath, being able to control the movement of one 's muscles and one's body, being able to execute a maneuver with great precision over and over and over again is absolutely a feat of athletic accomplishment. Ginny Thrasher uh was able to hit from ten meters away a spot the size of a period on your morning newspaper over and over and over again uh, with unerring precision. That's something that Justin Gatlin couldn't do. That's something that (laughs) Usain Bolt couldn't do. (laughs) Um, Granted, she probably is not much of a sprinter either, but they're all, um, you know, it's it's physical prowess and uh, I'm proud of her.
1: Hey, if you want a sprinting shooter, there's modern pentathlon for that. Yeah. We got that. There's biathlon in the, uh, in the winter, too. Which don't count. By the way, West Virginia's <laughs> won four NCAA championships in a row. And there are no schools that compete in NCAA rifle that you wouldn't think compete. You know, like Yale's not on the list. It's uh, TCU, Murray State, Kentucky, Alaska, Fairbanks, Nebraska. Very disturbingly, Army and Navy are only ranked 13th and 14th in NCAA riflery. <laughs> I covered... One of the uh, shooters pretty extensively in 2012, and it's really hard because if we think golf is hard when you're standing over that putt, there's probably some quote about hardest thing in sports. Shooting is five times as hard. There's much less, much less leeway. And there and the mental aspect, which you, you talked about in your piece online, that you have 30 seconds to shoot and you could— 50 seconds. 50 yeah. seconds. So you and your competitor stand next to each other and you just wait and yeah. wait and wait. And you want to take pretty— so, You're making a calculation, like the tension is building up in you, but you're hoping the tension's building up in her or him. Uh, If you shoot early and you miss by a little bit, you give them an opening. So, I mean, it's it's great. It's great mind games. I wouldn't want to watch it every day on TV, but it's a totally legitimate sport that deserves to be in the Olympics.
3: Equestrian we could talk about, but I'm with you on shooting. (laughs) My first comment, and I speak for the entire – Listening audience here, when I say it's a little bizarre that you nominated a, a rifle shooter to be like Katniss from the Hunger Games when there is literally archery in the Olympics. <laughs> uh, so just wanted to point that out. The other thing is the decathlon used to be the number one event in the Olympics, like the big star making, show stopping thing. And I think what can save it is to do a version where you have to do every other Olympic event, not just the track and field stuff. What if you could just nominate one athlete from your country and it would kind of play out throughout the entire two week period. Maybe the U S would nominate Ashton Eden because he's already, he already knows a bunch of sports. Like one day they would be playing table tennis. And that is like an online feed that I would want to follow for several weeks and would not be able to turn away from.
4: The best all-around athlete from each country competes against the best all-around athletes from other countries in literally every <laughs>
1: event at the games. I would watch that too. It would still be Bo Jackson, wouldn't it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> better than better than surfing. <laughs> Coming to you in 2020. Um what are your thoughts on the injuries in the gymnastics, Mike? You were you had some comments about the concussion protocol or lack thereof there's also a snapped leg from a french vaulter were you able to look away
1: i i wasn't i tried not to see it and then i uh put in twitter uh rio gymnastics boom 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 boom. but it was almost entirely like that one simpsons episode where the guy breaks his leg with the crunch i think that the the british gymnast uh downey who is, you know, she talked about, she heard a crunch in her neck when she fell in her floor exercise and she couldn't continue the floor exercise. But she also talked about dizziness. And if you looked at her eyes, she was not just feeling pain in her neck and rubbing her neck. She was clearly not all there. Um, She came back. She was celebrated as one might be celebrated, like Carrie Strug did from a leg injury, but a leg injury is different from a head injury. And this was like a playbook right out of the uh nineteen nineties or really early aughts, where there was just no conception of concussion or what that could mean. And she went right on to another apparatus and it was all heroic and she qualified for the uh, individual all around. And it was just heroic, heroic. And yeah, it was gutty. I give all credit to the athlete, but there should be, we're talking about very small teenage girls. And there was nothing said about was she checked out in any way by anyone with any training in brain science. And it's really disturbing. And it was, she was applauded. Uh, I I don't take anything away from her guts, but it seems like the whole sport, which we found out today, we we found out this week, especially the U.S. Federation, Indianapolis Star reporting. There's a lot of uh, there seemed to be quite a bit of pedophilia going on in the sport. I don't know. I don't know who is exercising oversight on these really vulnerable athletes. That ought
4: to be the role of a coach or a sports governing body, though, right, to, you know, be able to step in. Uh, In specific circumstances like this and say, look, um, you've got guts, like good for you. Like you've shown the world sort of immense amounts of heart. Uh, But we know that these games will end and you are going to have to live presumably a very long time since you are but a teenager. Um, And it is our you know, role and responsibility as you know, the sort of responsible ones here uh, to look out for you, right? Not just you and your metal hopes here, but to be the people who are stepping in and saying, okay, um, this, you know, you there are going to be consequences for this that you're going to have to pay for the rest of your life, um, whether or not you win a medal.
3: Potentially. I mean, potentially, potentially.
1: Yeah, well, that's, being we don't a little know,
3: mellow, that's being a little melodramatic. What I would like to do, I'd like to cheer her heartily
1: after knowing that she was cleared by a neurologist or yes, someone with that decent is, training. That it is, is quite possible fair. she didn't have concussion symptoms, but I suspect she did. And if this were a high school competition and she's a high school age girl, we'd not want her put back.
3: All right, for our last segment of the day, we will take you to Wrigley Field, to Chicago, to an idyllic summer day. Justin Peters, my friend, longtime collaborator at Slate, also a part-time beer vendor. Though I've known you for a very long time, Justin, we have not really talked in detail about your beer vending career. You've been doing it for 17 years? 17 years, that's right. So my understanding is that you work your way up to beer, that there's a hierarchy. So kind of walk us through what that process has been like.
4: So when I started in 2000, I was 19 years old, I think. And my parents told me I needed a summer job, which to be clear, I did. I was spending a lot of that summer (laughs) hanging out with, you know, local youth, um, (laughs) doing stuff that I was far too old to be doing. Um, So... I went down to uh, Wrigley and I signed up with uh, the Vendors Union. Um, there is a Vendors Union. It's a very strong union. And it is to this union that I owe my continued employment in Wrigley Field, despite the fact that I haven't really lived in Chicago full time uh, since I started uh the job. So basically at all, um,
3: I was (laughs) going to
1: say, yeah,
3: ever real, really. I've never actually lived in Chicago, uh, full time. Has the Um, vendors union endorsed anyone in the presidential race? Uh, I assume that
4: SEIU is going for Clinton, uh, though they haven't asked us to go and sort of hoist placards or anything like that, but I support my union. I do what they say. Anyway. Um, yeah, I started off, uh, selling, uh, cotton candy. Um, worked my way up to peanuts, then sort of hot dogs, then water. Water is a surprisingly uh, popular and lucrative item to sell. Would you have guessed that, Mike, that it would go cotton candy? What was the order again? Uh, Cotton candy, peanuts, hot dogs, and water. And hot dogs and water are basically equal. You can make a lot of money
1: in water on hot days. That's the idiom. It's like hot dogs and water. (laughs) I would think cotton candy wouldn't sell that great, but so light. So light. Yeah, you'd think it's light, but they used to have
4: us tote these gigantic, like, (laughs) trees of cotton candy, really, that everyone hated you because you were blocking their view, (laughs) and, like, kids don't tip. Uh, Cotton candy (laughs) was the worst. Um, Kids don't tip. No, kids don't don't tip. Uh, But then when I turned 21, uh, I got on beer, and I've been on beer pretty much ever since. And first, I sold old-style And I sold Old Style for many years. That's Uh, the Chicago area Swill. It's the Chicago area Swill. It's the beer you didn't want to sell if you had a choice, which I didn't. My seniority was still very low. Uh, Then they stopped having Old Style at the park a few years ago, and they switched over to uh, Goose Island. Um, But now I sell Bud. Uh, I sell Bud in the Grandstand. When I'm there, I'll sell it usually in the left field Grandstand. And... I'll probably have to wait another 17 years to be able to make it down to the box seats. But uh, I'm
1: happy with what I've got. I heard a good Planet Money on how it works in Wrigley, how there's no, not Wrigley in Fenway, how there is a hierarchy. And depending on seniority, you get the vendors get to draft essentially the first pick. So, you know, uh, right behind the dugouts, beer is the first one to go. So where are you in the packing order that you get beer in the grandstand? Um, is that, or is that not how it works?
4: Yeah, right it's basically how it works. So there have been guys there who've been working there since the 50s. There are people who have insane uh, seniority. It's a sort of job that uh, keeps you fit. So yeah, it, it goes very much in seniority order. The people who've been there the longest have first crack at which commissaries they want to sell out of and like where they want to go. So uh, by the time we get around to seniority around, say, 1990, Uh, usually all the bud in the uh, box seats is gone. And from there, it's a choice. Do you want goose in the boxes? Do you want bud in the twos? Uh, Sometimes you can go upstairs. That's sort of a wild card because there are fewer guys up there, but also it's upstairs and uh, tips aren't always as good up there as they are down. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quite polite. Yeah, for a long time, uh, I I worked up. I worked uh,
1: upper right. Is your memoir going to be called Goose in the Box, Eats, Bud in the Tooth? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's um,
4: that's as good a title as any. Uh, so much. <laughs> uh, that or Kids Don't Tip. Kids Don't Tip.
3: Hot dogs and water. The, 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 yeah. the thing that's sort of— But if uh, you feed them enough beer, they'll, t- they'll tip. Y- well, you know— <laughs>
4: The thing is, when you start to, you know, start to hear all the lines, right, you start to sort of, people are not very thoughtful or imaginative, right? They will joke with you, but there's about six different jokes, and one of those jokes is, you know, a father sort of, like, pointing to his kid and, like, sort of goading that kid on to sort of, like, um, order a beer, and the kid's always, like, five years old, and the dad thinks it's hilarious, and my standard response is, um, come back in six years,
1: No matter the age of the kid. Yeah, no matter the age of the kid. That's good. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, Another line. Listen, there's always some old guy who's been like, oh, don't you want to see my ID? (laughs) And I'll say something
3: like, "Uh, I don't know. I trust your smile, Uh, (laughs) sir. So let's uh, break it down as far as money. That's what that's what everybody wants to know. Oh, I got to be circumspect here. Oh, you I do? Can't
4: yeah, I, I I can't say sort of I- explicitly sort of like what I make. I I can't say. Look, it's um. Can you say how many
3: beers you sell per game?
4: Yeah, I'll sell between depending on the day between sort of eight and twelve cases is you know a usual average. There's twenty four beers. So hundred to one hundred fifty. Uh, so 8 times 24 is... Oh, 200. Yeah, that's uh, 192, yeah, right? It's yeah, between yeah. 192 and, like, close to 300 beers. Um, weekends are best. Friday afternoons are best. Uh, holidays are the worst. You don't want to sell on Mother's Day or Father's Day because people come there with their mothers and fathers and don't want to drink a lot. Uh, playoff games... There haven't been that many at Wrigley since I've worked There have been a few. Uh, they're not good either because people actually want to pay attention to the game. And they've paid so much money for the tickets that they're not going there to get blasted. Uh, I wish they were. Um, it's always good to have extra games to work. But those are not the best games. The best games are summer Fridays, summer Saturdays at 3.05, certain uh, night games. Uh, commission on Bud is almost a dollar a beer. Um, so you guys can do the math on that. And then, um. See,
1: that's him being circumspect. Yeah, making us do the math. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if Steve Traxel's on the mound, yeah, you, could, yeah. <laughs> you could get 200.
4: <laughs> I used to work at Sox, and we always hated when Burley was pitching because <laughs> uh, there would literally, you'd, you'd like sell two fewer cases with a Burley game than you would with uh, anyone else. Quick worker. quick, Quick yeah, pitcher. Exactly.
1: How many days a year do you get there? You're a New Yorker.
4: Um. So you got to work at least 15 games per year between mid-May and the end of August in order to keep uh, working there for next year. And they just instituted that as a rule a couple of years ago. I'm glad they did. You know, uh, if there was a few seasons there where I probably only worked five or six games just to sort of retain my sort of status there. And uh, union
3: benefits. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but you've worked like 17 games so far this year. I've worked
4: 12 games and two concerts. Those fish concerts I worked were insane. Uh, Those people. um, uh, Anyway, those were good vending days. Um, Look, my folks still live in the area. You know, I've got friends out there. Uh, All of my relatives are still in Chicago. Uh, For the balance of the time I've had this job, I've basically treated it as an excuse to go home a lot during the summers and see my family. I know I'll make back the... um, Uh, Price of my plane ticket, you know, very quick if I work there for a few games. Uh, I come back with some spending money and stuff that helped me make rent.
3: And also, when you were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when they listed your job, you got to say you're a part time beer vendor. Yeah, which is a much better
4: story than, um, you know, journalist. Uh, I will say, uh, Wrigley is one of the the place where I get recognized the most for uh, being on Millionaire. At least once a homestand, someone will come up to me and very nervously say, do I know you from television? Um, (laughs) That's awesome. And then I'll say yes. And they're always very excited. How much of the game do you watch? Uh, you see moments. Um, your back is turned to the action for most of it. So mostly you're listening for sounds, right? You can see when the crowd is getting interested in something. So you're able to sort of turn your head and watch the big moments. And then, you know, there are times where you know something cool is probably about to happen. So you'll set down your case for about 20 seconds or you'll crouch in the aisle to make sure you see a pitch. The best thing I saw this year so far was Wilton Contreras, the Cubs rookie catcher. On the first pitch he saw, at the first at-bat of the season, he cracked it for a home run. The place went wild. People were crying. It was such a <laughs> magical moment that seems so emblematic of what this season has meant to Cubs fans. And I was off in, way off in the left field corner at this uh, sort of weird place where you can stand. And I watched that moment. I'm like, "Yes, yeah, this is a good job. You know, sometimes this job is really great. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it's really great. Are you going to go work World Series for sure if they make it? If they make it. I mean... And what's your strategy? Try to sell as much as you can? or Yeah, we, uh, you always try to sell as much as you can. When I'm there, I'm working. You know, if I want to watch a game, I'll stay home or I'll buy a ticket. Um... I actually won an employee raffle in 2005 at Sox to um, sort of get two free tickets to a World Series game. And I sold them because um, I don't want to watch the game. I don't want to make money and work there. So if they make the playoffs in series, if my schedule allows, I will go and work as many as I can. Uh, and I will try to duck down and stay out of people's sight lines. I will stick to my section. I will ensure that the pores that I'm giving people are of the highest quality. I will be um, friendly, yet not try to make an imposition of myself. I will try to be a model of
3: professionalism, and I'll cheer like hell up and when they win. All right, so we need to end and maybe— We should turn Justin's mic down or have him back away a little bit, but we need Mm -hmm. to hear your sales pitch. So there's a few
4: that you use, right? And I will say that people who put too much effort into their sales calls are not the guys who are selling the most beer. Fascinating. Because this is a speed game, right? People will laugh or maybe applaud if you say something really funny, but that does not always translate into sales. What you want to do is be expedient and be efficient, right? So I try to be as loud and sort of efficient as possible. So people who are not, who maybe I'm coming up from behind, know that I'm coming down. They know what I'm selling because while I have sort of memorized the color coding of the various cases that people sell, you know, every game is filled with people for whom it's their first game. They have no idea what it is. So um, I'll back away from the mic and sort of give you um, a taste. Hey, Beerman here. Hey, Budman. Bud Man Cold Beer. Hey, Beer Man. Bud Man, Bud, Bud Light Cold Beer.
1: Do it with the Goose Island.
4: Hey, Goose. Goose, Goose, Goose. We got Goose. Goose Man's here. There's a guy who yelled, the goose is loose, and he's got a little goose sort of like uh, horn that he uses. Uh, trying too hard. Yeah, I'm not as flamboyant as that guy. I'm, I'm, I'm a simple man with a simple call. Goose man here. <laughs> we got IPA. We got wheat. Three, one, two,
1: goose. <laughs>
3: I'm going to just pass a, a $10 bill down just from D.C. to New York, just kind of in a succession of hands. pass, pass, pass. pass. Okay. There you go.
4: Buck twenty five, change, and I'll hold it up, and you'll sort of give me the nod, and I'll take it and
3: go. Uh, that was that was fantastic. That was fantastic, Justin. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg.
1: This is the Deal. Each week, you're your us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business.
0: Sports is not uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't
1: want to do another stomp you out speech.
2: It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal.
3: Listen to The Deal.
1: Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
3: Now it's time for Afterballs and Justin, who is your favorite Olympic athlete who we have not yet discussed on today's program? Her name is Kim Song I. I don't know if that's actually how you pronounce it, but phonetically
4: it'll do. She's a table tennis uh, athlete for North Korea. I was watching her yesterday in this uh, seven-game match against a Japanese woman whose name I forget. Uh, it went all the way down all seven games. It's table tennis is the best of seven thing. The match was closely contested the entire time and she pulled out the victory and i was very glad for her because as i was saying to you while i was watching it josh it's a hard thing to root for the north korean competitors or to watch them play because you suspect they might face consequences back home if they don't succeed uh so i was very glad to see her succeed uh and i'm gonna be rooting for uh, throughout the rest of the games
3: all right uh mike what is your kim song i what I like to do is I read
1: Sports Illustrated's prediction of everyone who will win a medal, so I know if there's an upset of Bruin. But there, not as a medal prediction, but as a medal contender in modern pentathlon was Omar El Jazeri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. E-L-G-E-Z-I-R-E. Maybe it's El Gaziri. And another notation of someone else who could win a medal in the modern pentathlon also from Egypt, is Amro El-Ghaziri. And it struck me that not only do these two gentlemen both have the same last name, their first names are anagrams of each other. Could it be that the El-Ghaziri brothers are brothers? Yeah, they're brothers. These guys are pretty amazing. First of all, Omar, is his day job is he's a fencing coach at the United States Air Force Academy. And a little while back, while the Air Force Academy was at a meet, a uh, van in Philadelphia jumps a curb and, boom, slams into a car. And this car starts going on fire. And uh, El Jazeera and another member of the team arrived at the passenger side of the van, ripped open the door. To their surprise, they found a woman in the passenger seat with a compound fracture, and her lower right leg was bleeding. They removed her from the vehicle. And they addressed the woman's wound because uh, James Salem, the coach, had some training and provided the necessary treatment. Salem was a practicing general physician in Egypt for four years. Now, it doesn't mention Omar El Jazeera's training as a medical professional, but it turns out that Amro El Jazeera is, in fact, has his doctorate in surgery and internal medicine. Amro is better at the swimming events in modern pentathlon, as can be inferred by the fact that he's a fencing coach. Uh, Omar is maybe better at the sword play. But I'm rooting for these Egyptians to become one of them, if not both, to become the first medalists in modern pentathlon from the entire continent of Africa to say nothing of the country of Egypt.
3: Justin, what is your Kim Song-i? Iraq
1: doesn't
4: really have what you would call a victorious Olympic tradition. In 1960, Abdul Wahid Aziz won bronze in men's lightweight weightlifting. That was the last and only Olympic medal the nation has ever won. If Olympism in Iraq is known for anything, it is for the atrocities perpetrated on losing athletes by Uday Hussein, son of Saddam, who chaired the nation's Olympic Committee for many years. This year, Iraq has sent 23 athletes to Rio to compete in rowing, swimming, weightlifting, boxing, judo, and soccer, none of whom are expected to medal. But Iraq does hold one Olympic record that, to me at least, is worth remembering and perhaps even celebrating. In 1948, it fielded the absolute worst basketball team in Olympic history. Not only were they the worst basketball team in Olympic history, they may have been the worst team, period, in Olympic history. Consider this. The Iraqi team averaged 23.5 points per game. They lost all six games that they played. The most exciting moment during their run came during a game against Chile when, according to the Independent, a British referee was knocked unconscious, though how or by whom remains unreported. The team's best player, Khalil Wadu, averaged 8.3 points per game and scored in double figures three times. He was the only Iraqi player to ever score in double figures. The next best player... There was no next best player, really. As bad as they were on offense, they were even worse on defense. They may not have actually played defense. I don't know. Maybe they're playing like a 0 zone or something. Uh, anyway, the point is their opponents averaged 103.7 points per game against them. Their average margin of defeat was 80.1 points. The team lost two games by 100 points, three more by 70-plus. These were numbers that had embarrassed the Washington Generals. For their final Olympic match against Switzerland, the Iraqis didn't even bother showing up, which turned out to be a savvy move since the official score was recorded as 2 to nothing, thus making it the best game the Iraqi Olympic basketball team has ever played. It was also the last game they ever played. After their humiliation in London in 1948, the Iraqis never fielded an Olympic basketball team again. Now, I've racked my brain trying to figure out why the 1948 team was so bad. I don't think the team was comprised of just 10 random guys off the street. Basketball was certainly played in Iraq prior to the London Games. There's evidence to indicate that at least one of the team members, George Hanna, was a prep basketball star in Iraq in 1947. The teams to which they lost weren't exactly traditional basketball powerhouses at the time. They lost by 100 points to Korea and China. They didn't even play against any of the three eventual medal-winning teams. Was it a matter of coaching? Iran also sent a very bad basketball team to the 1948 Olympics, but the Iranians actually won once against Ireland, and they weren't outscored by 80 points a game. There's a story here in this very bad basketball team, to be sure. It's a story that transcends what can be learned from mere statistics, but I haven't been able to find it. I've been fascinated by this team since I first learned about them in 2012, but my intermittent research efforts haven't been very fruitful. Information about the terrible Iraqi basketball team is conspicuously absent from books about the 1948 games or about Olympic history in general. Contemporary newspaper accounts of the games, if they mention Iraq at all, dispatch them in a line or two, an inexperienced Iraq team, stuff like that. The academic journals are silent. The internet says nothing. It's as if the world deliberately wants to forget the worst team of all time. We tend to celebrate Olympic extremes, the very best and the very worst. The very best Olympians get rich and famous. The very worst ones get movies made about them. Eddie the Eagle, the 1988 Jamaican bobsled team. And what these two poles share in common is incredible perseverance. The people of Earth don't really care whether you win or lose. Just as long as you tried really hard to get there. Now, to be clear, I have no idea whether the 1948 Iraqi Olympic basketball team tried very hard. I don't know if they lost gracefully, if they were responsible for concussing that poor referee. Were they noble failures or were they just failures? I don't know. All I know is that they were there. And they were there. And in 1948, three years after the nations of the world faced each other in war, Just showing up to the games was in itself an act of courage, of optimism for a better future. Well, I'll tell you this. The Iraqi basketball team showed up to the games, and they did a very bad job, and then no one ever heard from them again.
3: Ask my afterball. (laughs) (laughs) So, Justin, if people have information on the Iraqi basketball team, uh, how should they contact you with this information? get at me any way you can Uh,
4: please uh justin.peters at slate.com um is an email address you can find me on twitter at justin trevitt that is j-u-s-t-i-n-t-r-e-v-e-t-t um i'm often in random bars in new york city at night if you want to find me there yeah Yeah, it's the the best way sidle up to me yeah
3: hey josh what's your kim Sung Eye? So the Olympics are weird now. They used to be even weirder. Here is an excerpt from USA Shooting's history of shooting at the Olympics. Live pigeon shooting was held only once in Olympic history in 1900. The object of this event was to shoot and kill as many birds as possible. This was the first and only time in Olympic history when animals were killed on purpose. The birds were released in front of a participant and the winner was the competitor who shot down the most birds from the sky. The participant was eliminated once they missed two birds. Nearly 300 birds were killed. The event turned out to be quite messy in the end with dead or injured birds on the ground and blood and feathers all over the place. An award of 20,000 francs was the prize for the winner, though the top four finishers agreed to split the winnings. Now that... Is the Olympic spirit embodied? On Wikipedia, there is a kind of note, a caveat in the list of 1,900 Olympic winners on the result list that says, the following results are not included in the official IOC Olympics results list. Well, that's that's a scandal. That's interesting. Uh, Why are they not included on the official IOC Olympics uh, results list? So the people... That uh, one, there's the live live pigeon shooting, which had a 20-franc entrance fee. Think about how much more money the IOC could make if they made the athletes pay entrance fees. This is uh, an innovation that they'll surely want to bring back. The first place in the live pigeon shooting was Donald McIntosh of Australia – McIntosh also tied for third in live pigeon shooting, 200 franc entrance fee. This is like the World Series of poker. It's like the $10,000 buy in live pigeon shooting, the $5,000 pigeon shooting, the like uh, pigeon lowball event. Uh, There are a lot of different entrance fees here. So Donald McIntosh has been celebrated on the Facebook page for the Melbourne Gun Club. He started shooting rabbits and hares not long after he first attended primary school. This is no Jenny Thrasher who learned about uh, shooting from her grandfather as a teenager. Donald McIntosh started shooting rabbits and hares as a young lad in Australia, going after them with a flask of black powder, a few pounds of lead, and an ancient muzzle loader. He joined the Bacchus Marsh Shooting Club at the age of 10 and soon established himself as a fine shot. At 23, he was a member of Melbourne Gun Club and within six months was placed on the most difficult handicap, 30 yards. And then we get to the uh, the nub of our matter here. During his lifetime, McIntosh was never listed as an Olympic medalist, but in 1987, the IOC declared that he in fact had won gold and bronze medals at the 1900 Olympics. Hooray, all is well. But wait, the Australian 2012 gold stripped from our history was the headline. The IOC, without notification to the Australian Olympic Committee, has removed the name of 1900 Paris Games shooting gold medalist Donald McIntosh from its list of 27,794 Olympic medal winners on its website without notification to the Australian Olympic Committee. Can you imagine So the article goes on to note that the Paris Olympics, at the suggestion of their founder, Pierre de Coubertin, the Baron, were grafted onto the Universal Paris Exposition. And over the decades, historians have been confused as to which events formed part of the Olympics and which were attached to the expo. So there's a book, Social Sciences and Sport. That I found that gets into this uh, controversy a bit. Perhaps the main reason it writes for MacIntosh's disappearance from sporting history is the fact that the Paris Olympics were, for financial reasons, held in conjunction with a trade fair, the Paris Exposition Universelle. Indeed, there has been much confusion as to which events were Olympic ones and which ones were associated with the exposition. So I think at this point, it's really on us to decide for the world and for Australia whether 20 franc entrance fee pigeon shooting is an official Olympic event and whether McIntosh is a gold medal winner. There are three of us, so there cannot possibly be a tie. What say you, Justin Peters? I'd say give that man his medal. Mike Pasca, medal him. And I'll make it unanimous. Congratulations, Mr. McIntosh. You are an official Olympic gold medal winner in the event of 20 franc entrance fee live pigeon shooting. It's <laughs> good. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to hang up and listen to iTunes. You can find us by going to iTunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Producing the show for us this week is Dan Bloom. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.